The leader had been fighting a war for ten years. Like every other soldier in his army, he was tired, weary, and more than ready to return home. His wife and son may have possibly given him up for dead, and his kingdom given to another ruler. So long had he been away. But he had been fighting for too long, and sacrificed too much to give up now. Gathering all his cunning and wiles he had become renowned for, he gathered his men and laid out his plan to win the war. It was something that had never been done before in the annals of military history, which was why the leader knew it would work. The city was formidable and well fortified. They could not breach the outer wall by sheer force. But the leader's solution would get a small group inside, safely and unnoticed. And so he told his men what they would do. They would build a giant horse out of wood, hide inside, abandon the horse by the gates as an offering of peace, and the enemy would wheel the horse inside the godlike walls of the mighty city of Troy. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the next five episodes, we'll take you on a journey to discover five of the crucial virtues of life through the men who demonstrated them, not just with words, but with action. Welcome to Episode 3, The Ingenuity of Odysseus. Hosted by Scott Einig, with readings from the Odyssey by Stephanie Einig. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is ingenuity. Ingenuity is a trait characterized by cleverness, craftiness, and cunning. Very often we face challenges in life that cannot be solved so quickly and directly. Masculinity is often characterized by power and aggression, but not every battle we face in life is one with great force or might. Often it takes an ingenious solution to solve problems, something unorthodox that violates a man's sense of order amid chaos. Ingenuity is not strained by time and trials, but thrives because of them. The ingenuity to think before we act is an essential trait that men must have to succeed against whatever obstacles we face. One of the greatest examples of ingenuity in world literature is the figure of the Greek hero Odysseus. As we see, he and his crew face a legion of dangers that can only be conquered by the ingenuity of their leader. The tales of Odysseus can be found in two of history's most famous stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Both are believed to have been written by the blind poet Homer in the 8th century BC. There remains debate about whether Homer himself wrote the poems, whether he recorded them from oral traditions, 
or whether he even existed at all. Nonetheless, the stories had something of a biblical significance to the ancient Greeks. To them, the two epic poems were more than pieces of entertaining fiction. They were guides about how the world worked and how one should live. Odysseus in particular provided an example of how the virtue of ingenuity could propel an average man into a place of legendary renown. After winning the Trojan War with his ingenious horse, Odysseus and his crew set out to finally return home to Ithaca. His wife Penelope and son Telemachus have been waiting for over a decade to see him return to his island kingdom of Ithaca. As they set sail, they stop by the island of Ismaris to go on a raid. The men celebrate over their victory, and, while their guard is down, a great many are slain by the island inhabitants. Odysseus manages to escape with most of his men, but as soon as they resume their journey, a violent storm strikes and blows the small fleet of ships completely off course. Now Zeus, gatherer of the clouds, aroused the north wind against our ships with a terrible tempest, and covered land and sea alike with clouds, and down sped night from heaven. Thus the ships were driven headlong, and their sails were torn to shreds by the might of the wind. So we lowered the sails into the hold, in fear of death, but rowed the ships landward apace. There for two nights and two days we lay continually, consuming our hearts with weariness and sorrow. The storm drives the men further and further away from their desired route, continuing unabated for ten days. They finally approach land, where they stop to find water and to rest from their ordeal on the sea. But they soon discover that the island is inhabited. The nonchalant and lackadaisical people don't seem interested in fighting or stealing from them. Instead, they offer the men handfuls of lotus plants, which they learn, upon consumption, is actually a powerful hallucinogen. The men become happy, light-hearted, and completely forgetful of their journey home. Odysseus knows his men are in a vulnerable state of temptation and will never leave if they linger. The king refuses the lotus for himself and drags the men back to the ship before more of the drug is consumed. Now whosoever of them did eat the honey-sweet fruit of the lotus had no more wish to bring tidings nor to come back, but there he chose to abide with the lotus-eating men, ever feeding on the lotus and forgetful of his homeward way. Therefore I led them back to the ships, weeping and sore against their will. I commanded the rest of my well-loved company to make speed and go on board the swift ships, lest happily any should eat of the lotus and be forgetful of returning. After leaving the land of the lotus eaters, they come upon another island that appears to be inhabited. Odysseus and his crew set about exploring the land, and they soon come across a cave. Their curiosity leads them inside, and they find that it is well stocked with all the food they could ever want. Despite not seeing the cave's owner, the men help themselves to a long-awaited feast. But suddenly, the cave's owner returns, and they see that he is not a man. He is a towering, one-eyed cyclops. When he sees the intruders feasting on his spoils, he blocks the cave entrance with a large boulder, and proceeds to kill and eat a few of Odysseus's men. The Cyclops then lays down to sleep for the night. 
The horrified men beg Odysseus to find a solution to the problem. They suggest killing the Cyclops, but the crafty and scheming Odysseus knows this cannot happen. So I took counsel in my great heart, whether I should draw near and pluck my sharp sword from my thigh and stab him in the breast. But my second thought withheld me, for so should we too have perished, even there with utter doom. For we should not have prevailed to roll away with our hands from the lofty door the heavy stone which he set there. So for that time we made moan, awaiting the bright dawn. In the morning the Cyclops awakens. He kills and consumes two more of the crewmen before going outside to graze his sheep. He blocks the door with the boulder, and the men are once again trapped. Odysseus is running out of time. He knows full well that they will all perish if they do not escape. The men look around the cave for anything that might be of use, and Odysseus notices a giant club beneath some blankets. He also remembers that the men have a large goatskin full of wine they brought with them when they made it to shore. Looking at both items, Odysseus's ingenious mind begins to work its magic. He instructs his men to sharpen the end of the club to a fine point and harden the wood over the fire. They hide the club and await the Cyclops' return. When he comes back, he kills and eats two more sailors before settling down for the night. Odysseus offers him the goatskin of wine, which he greedily consumes. He quickly becomes drunk and in his stupor asks Odysseus his name. He replies that his name is Nobody. Having identified himself, the Cyclops passes out. The men quickly spring into action. They raise the sharpened end of the club and with a mighty heave, plunge it into the eye of the Cyclops. He roars with pain and rage with such volume that the other Cyclops come to the door and ask him what is going on. He cries out that, nobody is hurting me. My heart within me laughed to see how my name and cunning counsel had beguiled them. But the Cyclops, groaning and travailing in pain, groped with his hands and lifted away the stone from the door of the cave, and himself sat in the entry, with arms outstretched to catch, if he might, anyone that was going forth with his sheep. So witless, methinks, did he hope to find me. But I advised how all might be for the very best, if perchance I might find a way of escape from death for my companions and myself and I wove all manner of craft and counsel, as a man will for his life, seeing that great mischief was nigh. Odysseus knows that he and his men cannot make a dash for the open entrance. Though the Cyclops is blind, he can still feel them with his hands. They look around the cave and see some of the sheep in the corner. Some of them begin to exit the cave, and Odysseus quickly makes his move. He ties himself and his men beneath the sheep so that the Cyclops cannot feel them as they leave. When they are all out, they quickly break for their ships, still anchored to shore. As they finally set sail, the Cyclops appears on the shore, screaming and cursing in rage. Odysseus shouts back at the beast, Cyclops, if any one of mortal men shall ask thee of the unsightly blinding of thine eye, say that it was Odysseus that blinded it the waster of cities, son of Laertes, whose dwelling is in Ithaca. Perhaps nowhere in the story is Odysseus's ingenuity better displayed than his escape from the Cyclops. 
While his men want to make quick decisions and act on impulses that feel right, Odysseus assesses every move and every outcome before springing into action. But despite this great feat of ingenuity, Odysseus, in pridefully revealing his true identity, has unknowingly made one of the worst mistakes of the entire voyage. As they sail off, the Cyclops cries aloud to his mighty father, Poseidon, god of the seas. He angrily begs Poseidon to curse Odysseus and his crew with either death or extreme hardship, and the powerful god hears his son's call. After devastating winds blow him even farther from Ithaca, and a race of giant cannibals destroys all but one of Odysseus's ships, Odysseus finds himself on the Isle of Aeon, where dwelt Circe of the Braided Tresses, an awful goddess of mortal speech, own sister to the wizard Aetes. His men explore the land, and Circe invites them into her dwelling. After seducing the lovesick sailors with food, wine, and the pleasures provided by her maidservants, the cruel sorceress transforms them into a herd of pigs. Now when she had given them the cup and they had drunk it off, presently she smote them with a wand, and in the styes of the swine she penned them. So they had the head and voice, the bristles and the shape of swine, but their mind abode even as of old. Thus were they penned there weeping, and Circe flung them acorns and mast and fruit of the cornel tree to eat, whereon wallowing swine do always batten. One of the men manages to escape and warn Odysseus of what has happened. He makes his way to Circe's palace to see what has happened for himself. Unknown to the sorceress, he has taken a drug that prevents her magic from having any effect on him. He bargains with Circe, agreeing to remain her prisoner if she would turn his men back into human beings. Circe agrees, and Odysseus remains her captive for a full year. When the year is over, she consents to him leaving. She tells him to receive instructions from the spirit of the dead prophet Tiresias, who will tell him how to get home. When he does this, the prophet tells him that he will make it home safely if he only does one thing. He and his men are forbidden from eating the cattle of the sun god Helios on the island of Thrinacia. On their way to the island, they come across one of the deadliest obstacles of their journey the Isle of the Sirens. The Siren's song is so beautiful that sailors go off course to get close to them and proceed to shipwreck and drown. No one has heard the song and lived, but Odysseus, the clever and cunning man, believes he can do it. When they get closer, Odysseus instructs his men to place beeswax in their ears so they cannot hear the song. He has the men tie him to the mast and leave his own ears unblocked. As they pass the sirens, Odysseus screams to be untied, but his men cannot hear him. Thus do they pass the sirens, with Odysseus emerging as the only one to hear the song and live to tell of its beauty. Upon surviving the sirens, the crew now must face another deadly obstacle, the Strait of Scylla and Charybdis. Scylla is an enormous six-headed sea monster, and Charybdis is a massive vortex that pulls entire ships to the endless fathoms of the deep. Odysseus passes by Scylla, knowing he must sacrifice a few men instead of losing them all to the whirlpool. 
the six men are devoured by the terrifying creature before they finally escape. Now when we had escaped the rocks in dread Charybdis and Scylla, thereafter we soon came to the fair island of the god, where were the goodly kine, broad of brow, and the many brave flocks of Helios. Then while as yet I was in my black ship upon the deep, I heard the lowing of the cattle being stalled, and the bleating of the sheep, and on my mind there fell the saying of the blind seer, Theban Tiresias, and of Circe who charged me very straightly to shun the Isle of Helios, the gladdener of the world. Odysseus and his men have depleted all their remaining food sources. Though he warns them of what Tiresias said about the cattle, the men, near starvation, decide to disobey their commander. They butcher the cattle and eat their fill. Only Odysseus refuses to eat. He knows that he has already angered the god of the sea, and to anger yet another god could doom him to death. When Helios the sun god discovers what has happened to his cattle, he is furious. In his rage, he cries out to Zeus for justice. Father Zeus, and all ye other blessed gods that live forever, take vengeance, I pray you, on the company of Odysseus, son of Laertes, that have insolently slain my cattle wherein I was wont to be glad as I went toward the starry heaven, and when I again turned earthward from the firmament, and if they pay me not full atonement for the cattle, I will go down to Hades and shine among the dead. Zeus hears the sun god's cry, and he answers his call with a vengeance. The men have feasted on the cattle for six days, when Odysseus and the crew finally set sail on the seventh day, Zeus, the king of the gods, causes a giant storm to rage across the sea. The ship sinks and the men are drowned. Only Odysseus is spared. After drifting for nine days, he washes ashore on the island of the beautiful nymph Calypso. He remains her captive for seven years before finally being released. He builds a raft and sails away, though he is again shipwrecked. He is eventually rescued by the Phaeacians, and finally, after twenty long years, Odysseus is taken home to Ithaca. Upon arriving, Odysseus knows that he cannot simply march into his palace and reclaim all he had sacrificed during his time at war. The suitors have coveted his throne and his wife Penelope for years, and he knows they will not give up without a fight. The king has seen for years how his men have behaved under such circumstances, and knows that acting impulsively will only lead to his ruin. Odysseus wisely chooses to hide his true identity as much as possible. 
He is soon thereafter given aid by the powerful goddess Athena, who transforms him into an old beggar. Therewith Athena touched him with her wand. His fair flesh she withered on his supple limbs, and made waste his yellow hair from off his head. And over all his limbs she cast the skin of an old man, and dimmed his two eyes, erewhile so fair. And she changed his raiment to a vile wrap and a doublet, torn garments and filthy, stained with foul smoke. And over all she clad him with the great bald hide of a swift stag, and she gave him a staff and a mean tattered scrip, and a cord therewith to hang it. With this disguise, Odysseus learns how things stand in his household and how dire the situation is. He learns that a contest has been arranged to determine who will become Penelope's new husband and new ruler of Ithaca. Whoever can string Odysseus's old bow and shoot an arrow through twelve axe heads will win. The suitors try and fail one after the other. Odysseus, still in disguise, asks for a turn. He strings the bow and makes the shot with little hesitation. The suitors gasp in astonishment, and Odysseus removes the rags to reveal himself. He proceeds to slay the suitors in one final battle. Now that he has won back his kingdom, he reveals himself to Penelope. She initially does not believe he is her long-lost husband, but once he tells her something only the two of them know, she embraces him. At once her knees were loosened and her heart melted within her, as she knew the sure tokens that Odysseus showed her. Then she fell weeping and ran straight toward him and cast her hands about his neck and kissed his head. Odysseus and his long journey of many perils finally comes to a satisfying end. What makes the story of Odysseus stand out is not the fact that he is the strongest, but that he is the smartest. Time and again he finds himself in situations that cannot be overcome by the might of his men or the strength of his armies, but by the might and strength of his ingenuity. His men are always ready to act without hesitation, whereas their leader is always ready to think, to plan, and to scheme. This quality of cleverness in the face of overwhelming odds was revered by the ancients, and many paid tribute to the hero in the hope that they too could rise above their situations as the legendary Odysseus had before them. Tell me, muse, of that man so ready at need, who wandered far and wide after he had sacked the sacred citadel of Troy, and many were the men whose towns he saw and whose mind he learnt. Yea, and many the woes he suffered in his heart upon the deep, striving to win his own life and the return of his company. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig. Editing and mixing by Scott Einig and Jamie Adams. Quotations from The Odyssey, read by Stephanie Einig. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. 
Tune in next time for episode four, where we discover the virtue of leadership as we follow the infamous expedition of Serenus Shackleton. <laughs>